Hey guys, we are in our last Sunday of Reset. Whoa. This is the last Sunday of our series, Reset. And we've been in this series for a long time, haven't we? It's been a long, like most of the year we've been in this series, and we've, we've talked about a whole lot of things, how to love God, how to love people. We, we're talking about the gospel. So this is the last Sunday that we're going to focus um, specifically on the gospel. As we've talked about the, the, the story of the gospel of Jesus, we've talked about what it is, and we always want to point you back to what it is before we talk about anything else. The Apostle Paul uh, tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And guys, not only have we talked about what it is, we've talked about the practical application of the gospel over the last um, several weeks. We've talked about how it relates to us personally because it is per- it's a personal thing that we're supposed to grab onto. We've talked about how it is supposed to relate to our families and, and how it relates to the world. And my guess is if, if you're new to this whole church thing or, or maybe, uh, maybe kind of new to Scripture, And that's okay, we're so glad you're here. It might seem, though, that we are a little bit obsessed with the details of the gospel. You might be here and you're just like, hey, we've already talked about the gospel enough weeks. Can we move on to talk about marriages? Can we move on to talk about addiction? And all those things we need to talk about, but but here is why we're camping out on the gospel for so long, and it goes right back to Paul's writings about first importance. So, so 2,000 years ago, Paul was reminding the church at Corinth of what was most important. That tells me that the people of Corinth were just like people of today. We have short memories and we tend to convolute things, right? The, the, the church at Corinth was getting this story mixed up and they were, they, they were turning the gospel into something that it isn't. And, and the truth is, 2,000 years later, we realize that we're just 2,000 years newer, but we do the exact same things. And we need to be reminded of what the gospel is so that we can do the necessary course corrections. That's what Reset has been all about for this year, is getting back on track. Why is this so important? So, so why is this of first importance? Why is this subject, the, the gospel, so important and, and important to be reminded of? Well, according to Paul, salvation is at stake. Salvation is at stake. And we know that salvation is not just into eternity. Maybe you were taught that as you were growing up. Uh, maybe you went to a church and everybody, it was just like, man, let's get a whole ton of decisions so, so that we can get through this miserable experience we call life and never be really changed on earth because that's, you know, it's hard. Life's hard. So let's get through and then one day we'll see Jesus and everything's going to be amazing. Maybe you heard that, but we know that salvation is meant for today. We know that salvation is meant to change us today. Mentally, physically, spiritually, psychologically, it's supposed to impact us starting today. So eternity starts today. And it goes into the day that we see Jesus face to face. 
and where we're changed forever and we don't have things like sin and struggle and sickness. And my gosh, doesn't that sound great? All the things that you brought in with you today, all the things that keep you awake at night, all of the struggle at work and struggle in your families and struggle in your body and struggle in your mind, you won't have those on the other side. But God wants that to start today. He wants to start changing you today. He wants to transform you today. It impacts this life and the next. That's why salvation is so much bigger than what so many people are taught in churches. It is for today and it's for eternity. Eternity starts today. So Paul tells us that what we teach has life and death implications. Life and death. If we get this wrong, we're leading people to slaughter. We can't get this wrong. If we get a whole bunch of other things wrong that don't have eternal consequences, we can deal with that. But I'm telling you, God will hold us accountable for how we hold his gospel. So we believe this and we take it seriously enough to keep coming back to the issue. Does this mean that we get this all right? Does it mean that we live this out perfectly? Uh, no. No. I've said many times to many of you uh, about any of us, if you hang out with any of us in leadership or any of, like deacons, elders, and honestly, if we hung out with you enough, we're all going to see that we are deeply flawed people, Right? If you think any of us up here has it all together, just hang out with us for about seven minutes. Because I think anyone can act nice for five. Right? Isn't it true? We can do behavioral modification. But this is, a hard, this is hard stuff. Life is hard. That's why we need Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is specific. It's not what... Uh, it's not what we want to make of it. It's not to be diminished and it's not to be added to. The gospel is very, very specific. According to Paul, if we do either, if we add to it or take away from it, we take away the saving power of God. This is why we take this so seriously. In light of that, in light of what Paul says, that life and death is held in how we hold the gospel, is it any surprise that the gospel as expressed in churches today and lived out by the humans that Jesus came to save, is it any surprise that there are a lot of gospels that are preached in churches that divert from this explicit gospel account in Scripture? Is it any surprise? Well, it would be a surprise if we didn't have an enemy. It would be really simple that we would just read this and all churches would just say, okay, this is the gospel, so we're going to teach that. But the reality is we have an enemy and the enemy doesn't stand outside of the church and growl at you and you just know, oh, I have to stay away from him. No, oftentimes he comes into the place where, where God is supposed to reign and he wants to attack the, the, the fabric of, of the churches and he wants churches to believe in gospels that are less than because he doesn't want people to be saved and he doesn't want people to be changed. And where can he do that the most effectively? I say it's in the church. So we can get up here and tell you a gospel that, that, isn't, that isn't what Scripture says, and, and honestly, uh, temporarily, you're going to feel great about it because it's not going to demand much of you. It's going to make you feel better about where you are in your life, in your heart, in your thoughts, in your actions. And you're going to think you're pretty good. 
Or you're going to look around and compare yourself to the person next to you and you're like, well, I don't do, do what he does. At least I didn't do that. Or I'd never do that. And you can for a while, maybe even your whole life, feel pretty good about who you are. But the gospel levels all of that and it basically says, it's not to, it's not to make your self-esteem low, it's just to level the playing field. And it says, hey, everybody's, everybody's screwed up. We've all screwed up. And we still all have tendencies to screw up, don't we? Yeah. Hey, listen, if, here's how you know. When you're really hungry, when you're really hungry, I mean, I'm talking about like you're hungry, you're hangry, you need a Snickers hangry. When you're really hangry, how do you treat the people around you? <laughs> Did you hear a giggle? I didn't. When you're really tired, how do you treat the people around you? We all have different triggers, don't we? When you're just sort of, you're worn out of people, do you feel like the next person who comes your way is about to get your wrath? If one more person says, I'm gonna, you know what I'm saying? We all have these things. We all need the gospel, don't we? So, so we have an enemy and we have a real gospel and we need to hold on to what this gospel is. So today, we're going to talk about what the gospel is not. Okay, we're going to talk about what it's not. And, and we're doing that because there are so many teachings that sound good. You know, Scripture even tells us in, in the last days, and, and, and we're not suggesting that this, this generation is the last one. Don't know. Every generation is pretty much, there, there are always people in every generation that have thought their generation was the last one. So when we talk about last days, we're talking about anything from 2,000 years ago to today, and none of us knows when that last day is. Isn't that good? Doesn't that kind of free you to just live? You don't have to know that. But it says in the last days, people will want to surround themselves with those who say things that make them feel good about where they are. So we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when the gospel is convoluted. So we're going to talk about several different gospels that are false, false gospels. They, they could have elements of being good, but they really miss the mark. So, so we're going to talk about um, the most common counterfeit gospels that, that I see in, in our society today. Now remember, let's go back real quick to what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth. He said, we're saved when we hold firmly to the word that was taught. Not any teaching, not the version that's most palatable to you, but the truth of the biblical account of the gospel with nothing added and nothing taken away. Okay, so that's, that's where we're going to start today. And here's, here's, where we're, here's the first one that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the gospel of extreme grace. The gospel of extreme grace. Now let's be clear about this. Jesus showed a whole lot of grace to us, right? That's why we can come to him. But, but there are always kind of shadow sides, just like there are to us. Our gifts always come with shadow sides, don't they? So when you're in a healthy place and you're really outgoing, that can be a great tool that God uses to reach people for Jesus. Now, when you're in an unhealthy place and you still are really outgoing, you can use that for tremendous bad to manipulate people and to use them for the things that, that you want to satisfy you. So, Grace can be convoluted as well. And here's kind of what this one sounds like, the gospel of extreme grace. It sounds something like this. I'm a Christian and I know that I'm going to heaven because when I was 12, 
I went up to the front of a church in a service and I prayed a prayer. And, and it's true that, that, that yeah, I, that's all I did. And when I was 12 and a half, I never went back to church and I never really changed. But, 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 but the prayer, I prayed a prayer. And I'm going to hold on to that for the rest of my life. I don't have to do anything else. Uh, the reality is that the 12-year-old who prayed that prayer and then doesn't do anything else gets disconnected from church doesn't read scripture, doesn't pray, doesn't get connected in community, darn good chance that at 32, they're just going to look exactly the same, just 20 years older. And that's a problem. But they're certain that they're followers of Jesus because they were told that if you pray this prayer, then you're, then you're in. You're in. That's all you have to do is just pray this prayer, and then you're in. And, and actually, you can do anything you want because you're forgiven. Man, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? You don't have to be changed at all. You can do all of those things. You know what things I'm talking about. All those things you want to do, all of them, and go to heaven. Oh, man, this Jesus, he is awesome. So obviously what's appealing about this is that you're just adding a little bit of Jesus to your life. You're just saying, Jesus, you can, yeah, okay, I'm going to pray that prayer because I'm humble. And Jesus is going to come alongside of me and, and he's going to kind of wink and nod at all those things that I do and just be like, that's why I died. That's why I died for you. And we're never changed. And that's the gospel of extreme grace. And here's the problem with that. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, the apostle Paul addresses this kind of thinking. This kind of thinking has been around since the very beginning. He says, should we continue sinning in hope that grace will abound? And he answers, by no means. We are dead to sin. So we're told what we are. We're dead to it. Now you can continue walking in it and go against the, nature that, the new nature that God's given you, or you can resist it. And Paul says there's one way to do it, and it is to resist it, because you are declared dead to sin. We're called to change. But it's really appealing to human nature, isn't it? It really is. But here's, here's a huge problem. It completely takes away the need for repentance. And I can tell you from all of my readings of Scripture... There's absolutely no way, I don't care what prayer you prayed, if you did not repent of your sins and, and turn to Jesus, you are not saved. If you did not repent of your sins and turn to Jesus, you are not saved. Scripture is very, very clear about repentance being a precursor for your salvation. So if you have not seen any life change, I'm not talking about struggles and I'm not talking about you type A's that, that are, are trying to be perfect. What I'm talking about is if you are not struggling with sin, if you are not working out your salvation with what scripture calls fear and trembling, it doesn't mean walk around paranoid and terrified all the time. What it means though is this is serious business. He wants to see you change. And he loves you so much, he's given you the Holy Spirit to, to live inside you forever to help you walk towards him. The Holy Spirit will always towards Jesus. Always. But this takes away from the need for repentance. And here are some of the common statements. I, I, I loved, I found this. William Young was a, a theologian 
And he talked about um, some of the common statements that are made by people who embrace this false gospel. And here's the first one. The Christian does not need to repent in order to receive pardon from sin. That was just a common idea. There are a whole lot of people who really believe that still today. That's not found in Scripture. Here's another one. God is the author and approver of sin, for sin is the accomplishment of his will. Here's a third one. All externals, meaning works, are useless or indifferent since the Spirit alone gives life. In other words, you don't have to show anything after you've received the Holy Spirit. None of those three things are scriptural. None. The danger is obvious to to many of us here, but so many people in the world have bought into this. And we have to be careful that we don't slide this direction too. The danger is that it leaves people in their sin, encourages people to stay in their sin, and it negates the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. We're told that if we stay in sin after receiving the Spirit of God, that we grieve the Holy Spirit. So by definition, are we supposed to keep sinning? No, we're not, we're not supposed to grieve the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The Bible tells us um, how people get this kind of thinking. Uh, James 2 verse 19, James says, uh, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. This is a warning to us, guys, that, that belief about God does not necessarily translate into salvation. You can have all of the right thoughts about who God is and not be saved. You might have perfect sounding doctrine. You might be able to tell people the gospel. But if you are not living it, you are not saved. So this idea that we can just believe is totally antithetical to the biblical gospel of Jesus and it doesn't save anyone. So don't buy into the gospel of extreme grace. Here's the second one we're going to talk about, the next false gospel, the gospel of self-identification. The gospel of self-identification. This is kind of a touchy one in our society. It really is, but we have to talk about it. The gist of this belief is that we get to determine who we are and that in that self-determination, we get to be uh, the, the final arbiters of truth for our lives. And we say things like, well, this is our truth. This is my truth. We get to say what we are and and, and nobody can come against that because we have final say in our lives. And the truth is, God gives us that ability. He gives us free will. We can say this all day long. And we obviously know why this is appealing because we get to do what we like to do when we want to do it and we can say what we are and and we, we can say nobody else can tell me that's not who I am. And it gives, us, it gives us this freedom we feel inside, but it's a false sense of freedom. People say things like, it's, it's okay, that's who I am. So that's why I do that. How does this play out today? I think some of it's pretty obvious, but we see it often in terms of gender and sexual identity. We see it, it almost every week as we look in, in our schools. We hear something new about Um, about teachers uh, and schools getting sued for misgendering kids. Have you heard misgendering? That's that's a word that's pretty new, right? We didn't talk about misgendering uh, um, 10 years ago. 
but it's all over now. And it says things like this. There are hundreds of genders. I saw someone interviewed on a college campus. And, and this is like, like, like I'm, I think it was like Stanford. So these are smart kids. Uh, their parents are paying about $100,000 a year for them to go to the school. And they were interviewed about, uh, about the issue of gender. And, and this guy said, well, how, so let me ask you this. You're, you're a smart guy. <laughs> I sure am. I go to Stanford. Uh, so how, how many genders do you believe there are? And, and he said, I, I, I believe it's, you know, it's, it's probably thousands. He goes, oh, so, so you, you believe there are thousands of genders? Can you tell me what those are? And he, and he couldn't. And then when he got cornered, he said, well, gender is just... It, it's really just a human construct. And it's like, I don't know about you guys, but when I was formed, I didn't have any awareness. Do you guys remember back then? When you were formed? In your mother's womb? Now, some, some of us have memories that go back to a really young age, but I would bet that none of you have memories back in your mother's womb. And I would bet you didn't have a whole lot of say-so Therefore, I would bet that it's not a human construct. But this is so serious in our schools today that if you misgender a student, you can be sued for it. So if a kid comes into schools in the suburbs, I know this happened in Wheaton for sure, and says, I don't identify as a boy, you have to refer to me as a girl, the teacher then is required by Title IX to refer to that child by the preferred gender pronoun. Now here is appealing. I, 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 get, I, I, I get it. At first glance, it might even sound good to some people. Now, now, now to Christians, we can have this, um, this reactive tendency when we hear this, and, and what happens is, if we're not careful, we'll say things in a way that hurt the people that Jesus came to save. And we don't want to do that. That's not what we want to do, but we also do not want to water down what God says about his creation. So we have to hold things in a balance. We, we, I, I get that we don't want to say things or do things that make, make people feel less than, especially vulnerable populations. We want to be very, very careful with our words and our actions towards vulnerable populations. We don't want to make people feel more discarded than they already maybe have in their lives. But the question we have to ask Christians, and I hope the world comes to ask for themselves, is who gets to have ultimate say over our lives and who we are? In the Bible, in, in the very first book of, of the Bible, Genesis, in the very first chapter, we hear the account of creation. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 27, it says this, So God created mankind in his own image. And if you didn't catch that the first time, he says it again in a, in a different way. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I think it's really important to take uh, note of three things that we learn in this passage. One is that God made people. God made people. He's the author. He's the creator. He's the one who caused you to be here today. Him. He did it. Uh, the second thing is, is that he made people to be like him. Okay, so that's, that sounds like identity. And the third is that he made them male and female. Now, now l listen, I, I, I know that, that 
there are some people who have both sexes and they're called intersex. It's just true. We're not here to, to quote scripture like this to make them feel less than like they don't fit. There's already a lot of complication. Don't know why that happens, but, but one to, to 1.7% of people that, that are born have this. I heard that it's about the same percentage of people that are redheaded. It's just true. They're called intersex. This is not at all to take away. This does not mean that they were not made in God's image. But we live in a world that has fallen, that has all sorts of, of struggles. So we, we are not saying any of this to make them feel less than. But here's the danger inherent in the gospel of self-identification. It's that we take away authority from the creator to give identity. And we grab a hold of something and we call it our identity. And what happens is we, we've taken authority away from the creator and, and, and basically we have a replaying of the third chapter of Genesis when Adam and Eve decided to go their own way. And it, it, it's played out in our lives in the exact same way. We chose to go our own way and look at the results that we've gotten. They are not good, they're not healthy, they're broken. And we see it from generation to generation. I've said this before, look at your family and see the areas of brokenness in your family. Oftentimes you'll see generation after generation of divorce. You'll see generation after generation of porn usage. You'll see generation after generation of sexual immorality or alcoholism or anything that misses the mark that God has called us to. You'll see it over and over and over. But it started in Genesis chapter 3. Because when Adam and Eve chose to go their own way, against the, the directive of their creator, they were given over to the result of it, which ultimately is death. And it all came because of sin. And we'd love to blame Adam and Eve and say, I can't believe you guys did that. Because that's what we do. We have a hard time owning our own stuff, don't we? Why don't we say, I can't believe I do what I do? Not, I can't believe my wife does what she does, or my husband does what he does, or my teacher does what she does. Why don't we just stop and say, hey, we've all screwed up. That's the gospel. We've all screwed up. Let's own our stuff and encourage other people to own theirs, but let's focus on ourselves a little bit. Paul, uh, Paul addressed this way of thinking. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who, and I this, is, this really jumped out to me, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are what? Without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, hello Stanford, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Listen, idolatry, and, and you can look at that and say, well, I don't, I don't um, worship images at all. 
God, I promise you, we all have areas of our lives where we give an inordinate amount of time that, 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 take, that take our priorities out of order. We, we demonstrate our priorities by where we spend our time and our passion and, and our money, right? We probably all have some idols, don't we? But let's not buy into a gospel that enslaves instead of saves. It's one that really looks appealing, but then it gets you. It doesn't save. Here's a third false gospel, the therapeutic gospel. Now, this one's a touchy one for me because I love sitting down with people and helping them with their struggles. That's my background. That's Steve's background. We, we love this, and we're not taken away from the need for therapy. We're not taken away from the need to sit down and address things that have happened in our past because those things often inform our futures. So we need to process those. We need to get free. But, but the gospel of self-identification is really, I mean, I'm sorry, the gospel, uh, the therapeutic gospel is very similar in some ways to the gospel of self-identification because the main character in the story is you. The main character in the story is you. And it basically sounds kind of like this. The, 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 the key idea is that the fall of humans is mainly a failure to reach our fullest potential and that our greatest need is to find peace with ourselves. Ah, sounds good, doesn't it? Oh man, I've got all this stuff going on inside. I just need to be at peace with myself. And it, it might look like peace in our marriage. It might look like peace in our work environments. And, and we often see people try Jesus for a season because they've, they've bargained with him. How many of you have bargained with God? God, I promise I'll go to church every Sunday if you fill in the blank, right? If you fix my marriage, if you heal my cancer, if you, and it's like, wait a second, do we really think that God can be bargained with? Is he really that small? The main character in the story is us. And here's why this is so dangerous. The therapeutic gospel is dangerous because it never gets to the heart of the issue. It just deals with symptoms. It just deals with symptoms. And oftentimes the truth is in therapy, the, the, the initial issue that people present is just a symptom and they are trying to see if the person they're talking to is safe. And after a few good questions are asked, we find out that there's actually something behind the issue. So the presenting issue is not the main issue. And it's kind of strange that in the therapeutic gospel, we just scratch the surface and we don't deal with the issue. I may have shared this before, but a chiropractor friend of mine said this to me and it stuck with me forever. I can still hear him say it. He said, Neil, do you think that the reason that so many people have back pain is that there is a shortage of Tylenol in the Chicago suburbs? Think about that again. Do you think that the reason that so many people have back pain, is it because there's a shortage of Tylenol or ibuprofen in the Chicago suburbs? And it's just like, I mean, that's ridiculous sounding, right? But I think that it really applies to our whole lives. We often address symptoms and never get below the surface. And people often die while managing their symptoms well. We don't want to be dead people walking. We want to be people who are dead who come to life. And the therapeutic gospel leaves people in their death. 
Let's not do that. It's not a bad thing to deal with personal issues, but we have to deal with the main issue. And the main issue that that humans have is sin. Romans 3.23 tells us, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So don't look around and compare yourselves. Don't look around and compare yourselves. Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a lot of bad news and then there's this overwhelming good news. But he made a way. I love how Pastor John Ortberg talks about um, how, what God wants to do with us. Um, I, I, we used his small group curriculum one time, and he said this, and it stuck with me just like Dr. Jeff's Tylenol story. He said, God wants you to be the you-iest version of you. Okay, sounds stupid, right? But think about what he's saying. So many of us are seeking to find ourselves or find peace with ourselves, but here's how you find yourself. You lose yourself in him and he's going to give you who you were made to be. You put to death yourself and you receive, you receive him and he makes you the version that you were supposed to be. I love that. But you can't do this by just making peace with yourself or your wife or your job. You have to do it by making peace with God. Counterfeits are big problems for, for us. The, the U.S. Department of Treasury, you might have heard this before, but their job, like part of their job is to look for counterfeit money and get it off the market and prosecute those who make it. And, and, and they, don't, they don't find counterfeits by studying counterfeits, actually. They actually learn counterfeits by studying the real thing. They know the real thing so much. As a matter of fact, they know it by feel. They know it by weight, the appearance, and they know it by smell. They know real money by all of those things. It, it, it shows that they're, they're so intimately connected with the real thing that they can find a fake instantaneously. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, all of us have to ask is, do we know the gospel with that level of intimacy that you can recognize a fake? Do you share the gospel? When's the last time you shared it? We're going to talk about these things in the weeks to come because we want to be a church that is, is, is multiplying. And, and that happens when we become a community of preachers. I talked about that a couple weeks ago. But do you know the gospel story enough that if someone came to you and, and God opens a door for you to share that you could tell how you went from death to life? You don't have to have all the words, but you have to be able to share the story. And there's no better story than what God did in your life and what he's doing in your life. Do do you apply the gospel to your life? Do you keep going back to it and filter your decisions through the gospel? Is the gospel reflected in your finances? Is the gospel reflected in in, in, in what you put into your body? Like Christians, God cares about what you eat. Because what, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God wants you to live so that you can, you, you can be fruitful and, and do all the things that he wants you to do and so you can be there for your family. Do you seek to conform your experience of life to God's story or are you seeking to create your own way? Which one is it? Here's the final false gospel that we'll tackle today. It's the churchless gospel churchless gospel. This version of the gospel says you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. It's really not that important. Or it says something to the effect of I'm spiritual but not religious. People get really fiery about this one. 
And I, and I get it, because some people have been really hurt in church. I've been tempted as a pastor. I've been tempted as a pastor to walk away from ever attending a church. Because people can really suck that bad. They can. If you've been mistreated in the family of God, it, it, boy, it does something to you and it makes you want to run, run away. It happened to my grandfather in the, the last 20 years of his life and he saw impropriety and he walked away. He said, they're all hypocrites. And it's hurtful. So it's super, super appealing in our culture today because we're also, not only are we hurt, not only do we have scars from church experiences, that's why church, new churches pop up that are like, hey, we're not your grandfather's church. We've got pyrotechnics and we won't hurt you. and We won't tell you that you're doing anything wrong. It'll be great. Super appealing. It's also appealing because we run at a, at a fast pace in our lives. I, I, I think the schools, and we're in a school right now, I think our schools are almost designed to keep us from having any free time with our families. It's like, hey, hey, fam, can we all get together in about three months and have dinner together? Oh, sorry, we've got traveling sports, we've got everything. We've got uh, choir, everything. I feel like there's after-school activities after after-school activities. And I'm just like, guys, can we just chill can we not have kids have to get in sports at 18 months of age in order to make varsity? It's ridiculous. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, you haven't, you're 12 and you haven't been in a sport or activity since you're 18 months old. No chance that you're ever going to succeed in life. That's what we're told. No, nobody says that. No, they say we're, we're, we're making kids well-rounded. I don't know. I'm not so convinced. So it's super appealing to us to be able to cut out one thing and sleep in on a Sunday. How many of you guys want to sleep in on a Sunday sometimes? I do. I do. I see yawning as I say that, so I'm giving you permission. You can take a little nap in these last 10 minutes or so if you need to. Listen, I get it. It's hard. We're, we're all looking for space. We're all looking for margin. And let's be real. The easiest thing that we can cut out is the thing that has the least family pressure or societal pressure to be a part of. Right? If you kids, if you stop going to school, eventually a truant officer will come to your door and make you go to school. Uh, I mean, they, they just do. Unless you're 16, you have to keep going to school. And I'm just saying 16-year-olds, it's not enough education. So keep going to school, okay? But you have to go to school. It's an expectation. It's law. Now, you can stop going to work. You can stop going to work, but pretty quickly, they're going to stop paying you. But if you stop going to church, there's no one that's like, well, I mean, maybe we should. But there's no one that's going to send you a bill or fine you or, or shame you. It's just not going to happen. So you're going to be like, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot of cost to me not going to church. As a matter of fact, I can sleep in or I can have brunch. Brunch sounds amazing right now. <laughs> but it's so easy to cut out something and church is often the thing that's cut out because we're hurt or there's just so many other things that demand our attention and our energy, and we have a limited amount. So our culture makes it easy to do that. 
But here's the thing. You might start saying at some point, but, but I need to have some me time. I need a little space. So I'm not going to go for a while. Um, after, uh, our, after our last church experience, we took a, a couple of weeks where we didn't go to church. And I have to say it was marvelous. It was. A couple weeks was. But I realized after a couple of weeks that it'd be really easy for that to turn into a couple of months, which would really easily turn into a couple of years, which would easily turn into a lifetime. And that is not healthy and it's not good because here's what happens. You start to slide away from the things that you thought you would always hold to be true when you're not surrounded by a community of believers. 1 Peter 5.8 describes it. He says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. It's a whole lot easier for the devil to take out individuals than it is to come in and try to take people out of a big herd that's all together, that's running in the same direction, that promotes the same kind of things. It's a whole lot easier. And we do need each other, no matter how flawed the church is. And guys, the church is flawed. The big church is flawed, and our church is flawed. And guess what? We still need each other. Does that mean you have to hang out with every single person in the church? Of course not. You don't have that room to have friends. You can only do that in virtual world on Facebook. I mean, think about this. We have thousands of friends on Facebook. How many do you talk to in a week? Usually it's three. You don't have to hang out with everyone, but you do need people to walk with you. You are not made to walk alone. And I've never seen one person live the values that are described in Scripture apart from intentional spiritual community. I've never seen it. It just doesn't happen. Being in community is essential for you and for the world that you're called to reach because it's not just for you. God wants you to reach people too. The gospel is for you, but it's also for others. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. You guys have heard this many times before, but really let it sink in today. It says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you guys notice that the world's getting messier and messier? The world is creating new ways to sin, like exponentially. Like you're like, we talk about things that people do today that, boy, if they were doing them 10 years ago, no one talked about them. And it just feels like it just gets messier and dirtier and, and, and kind of like just, it, just uglier People have less patience for each other and they're just mean, there's just a mean-spiritedness about people, particularly online. But, but if it keeps going the way it does online, it's certainly going to become like that face-to-face in the not-too-distant future. We need each other more than ever. 1 John 4, verses 19 through 21, it says, We love because he first loved us. It takes us right back to the beginning again. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And some of you want to say, no, I don't hate anyone. I just don't want to go to church and be with people. Well, I would argue that that's passive hatred because if you are not with people, how can you love them? And if you, if you are not loving people, then how can you claim to know the God of love? 
It's impossible. For, for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. How can we love people if we aren't with them? We just can't. There is risk involved in this story. And the risk is this. You've been, you've been hurt before. And God wants you to still stand up and take a risk. He took a risk on us. He died for us when we were in sin. And not all of the people that he died for will come home. But he still did it because he, lo- he thought about each of us as individuals. And it was worth it. And for us, when we reach out and we love people and we show up in community like this every Sunday and we go to community groups, are we going to have messy relationships? Are there going to be some weeks where we feel like we kind of wish we didn't go to our small groups? Yep. And he wants you to keep risking because he risked for you. And he's asking you to stand in that place too. There's a chance to be hurt though. But I want to encourage all of us to take a stand today. I'm going to ask the band to come forward as we prepare to close. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 21 through 29. This should scare us just a little. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew against and beat the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Here's what you have to ask yourself today. Will you stand on the story of the gospel as revealed in Scripture? Or will you add things to it or subtract things to it and try to make your own way? You're either going to stand on this story or you're going to make up your own. Which one will you choose today? If you choose the one that, if you choose something that's different than this gospel, I can tell you in the short term, you're probably going to have a whole lot more success in this life because you won't offend people. You'll never hurt someone's feelings. You're just going to go along and, and do what feels good for you, so you're probably going to have a lot of fun. Other people around you won't feel like you're a wet blanket. <laughs> but if you choose the gospel, if you choose to put your life on the gospel, you're standing with the God of all time. You're standing with the one who breathed the stars and who will see you again. The one that you will give an account for your life to. If you want to say yes to this gospel, 
the Apostle Peter tells us how to do it in Acts 2.38. And he says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the promise of what is to come. He walks with you from this point on. When you say yes to him, he comes and he walks with you. Your whole life until he ushers you into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You can have all of the things this life can offer you and you can be the biggest success and you can't take one bit of it when you go. Let's be people who plant our lives on that word and on this gospel. And let's see what God would do with it. Let's become a community of people who proclaim this word, who invite people to change. And and we're not afraid to go into our neighborhoods and be the people God has called us to be right where he's planted us. It is not by accident that you live where you live. It is not by accident that you are here today. He wants to use you right where you are.